0: Hi, I'm Katie Fernandez and I'm Camille Vick. Welcome to our podcast. Today we'll be discussing how poverty affects speech and language development. Did you know? In a study of children from low-income households,
1: Justice and Isell found that the children had low skill levels on tasks measuring metalinguistic terminology, alphabet knowledge, and print and word concepts. These skills are necessary for kindergarten in many states and thus children from low income backgrounds may be at a disadvantage from the beginning of their formal schooling. In 2015, 5% of US households, which comes out to 6.3 million households, had very low food security. Research shows that childhood malnutrition produces permanent structural damage to the brain. Between birth and two years of age, the brain grows to approximately 80% if it's adult size. Malnutrition during this period is especially devastating to cognitive growth. Issues with cognitive growth means these kids potentially face trouble academically. Because of all these different effects from poverty, these children present special challenges for the school system because these children technically do not have language learning disabilities. They simply come from environments where language stimulation and literacy are not readily available.
0: These are all really interesting things for us to consider as people who work with children in all types of settings. But first, we need to know what poverty and low income actually means. So Camille, what exactly is poverty?
1: Well, Katie, according to the U.S. Census Bureau, a family of four lives in poverty if the family's annual income is less than $24,257. For a family of three, the threshold is $19,105. For two, it's $15,569, and for an individual, it is $12,228. Got it. So who is the most affected by poverty? Well, according to the Children's Defense Fund, they say the poorest are children of color younger than six. So as of 2015, this includes more than 14.5 million. And another way to look at it is one in five children.
0: Wow, those numbers are shocking. One in five children. So what are the percentages of poverty in different races? 27.6% are
1: Native American, 26.2% are African American, 23.4% are Hispanic, 12.4% are white, and 12.3% are Asian.
0: So what does poverty look like in the United
1: States? Well, according to Children International... One child in every seven will be born into poverty in the U.S. In fact, kids in the U.S. experience higher poverty rates than most developed nations. Only Greece, Mexico, Israel, and Turkey have higher child poverty rates than the U.S. Can
0: you believe that? Wow, I can't.
1: Almost 40% of American kids spend at least one year in poverty before they turn 18. The government spends just 10% of the national budget on kids a fraction of what other developed countries spend.
0: Wow. What is the educational background of families affected by poverty here in the U.S.? So
1: 86% of kids whose parents have less than a high school diploma live in low-income families. 67% of kids whose parents have a high school degree but no college education live in poverty. Less than a third of kids in poverty have at least one parent with some college or additional education.
0: So, we know there are lots of factors that will affect how a child develops speech and language, both internal and external factors. One of those external factors is the environment the child is in, including how supported they are at home and the resources available to them. These both tie into socioeconomic status, and yes, poverty. As Camille mentioned, one in five children are living in poverty. Besides that, these kids have something else in common. They all go to school, Since the public school system is a huge employer of speech-language pathologists, we need to be equipped to support these children. According to an article in the ASHA Leader from March 2017, some cognitive skills affected by poverty include working memory, impulse regulation, and language skills. Children from a low socioeconomic status may also deal with chronic stress, which compromises their ability to cope and their emotional development. In schools, children are often expected to demonstrate skills such as cooperation and patience. However, for some children experiencing poverty, these skills may need to be explicitly taught. This all ties back into speech and language development, especially when one considers what is called a limited language environment. A limited language environment may mean the child only hears the most commonly occurring words. Their receptive vocabularies can be fewer than 5,000 words while children from high-income families understand up to 20,000 words. We want to note here that this is due to a number of factors, not just that low-income parents may care less than high-income parents, or that they're unwilling to learn. Many low-income families balance minimum wage jobs with inconvenient hours, have poor access to health care, and have limited financial resources. We will discuss later why it's so important that SLPs are aware of these differences when attempting to send work home or connect with families. These are all systemic problems that may be out of our hands as SLPs, at least while we're on the clock. We fully encourage everyone to get involved in their communities and advocate for causes that matter to you, but we wanna make sure listeners are aware of this aspect of cultural diversity. Additionally, literacy is another area where there's a gap between low and high-income children. Prior to kindergarten, children in high-income families have heard up to 1,000 hours of reading, while children in poverty have been exposed to about 24 hours of reading. Researchers also often reference a word gap when they are discussing the speech and language differences between low and high income children. The figure typically quoted is a 30 million word gap, although the original study citing a 30 million word gap hasn't been replicated. Researchers agree some sort of vocabulary gap does exist, but perhaps it's closer to 4 million words. However, in a recent NPR article, Douglas Sperry and his co-authors fall into a camp that criticizes the word-gap concept as racially and culturally loaded in a way that ultimately hurts the children whom early intervention programs are trying to help. He says, quote, To look at income alone obscures real questions about the cultural mismatch between children of color and mainstream European children and their teachers as they enter schools. So in other words, it's not necessarily that poor children aren't ready for school. It's that schools and teachers, and I would argue SLPs, are not ready for these children. As we enter the workforce and attempt to be culturally competent clinicians, these are important perspectives to keep in mind. Most of us come from a place of privilege, and we should aim to be ready for these children. We'll discuss ways to do that a little bit later in the podcast.
1: Wow, this is all really interesting. So Katie, why is this important for us in our profession?
0: So, if we work in public schools, like I know you and I both want to do, It's likely we'll come across children from low socioeconomic status communities, and we need to know what may be different about their needs, whether those needs are linguistic or behavioral. Factors of poverty, such as high parental stress, food instability, limited healthcare, and even homelessness can all make it really hard for a child to learn at school. Sometimes this is referred to as a culture of poverty. It is important to remember that coming from poverty in itself is not a disability or dysfunction and therefore each child is different. Just like knowing a child is from a certain religious culture does not mean they practice all aspects of the culture. Later, Camille will give us some specific strategies for working with kids who come from poverty. There's also the issue of diagnosing children with a language disorder. So not only is there the potential for behavioral differences between high and low-income kids, there are linguistic differences as well. We all know SLPs are responsible for school diagnostics, and often use standardized tests to identify children with language disorders. In particular, language assessments pose an issue for African-American children. Many tests are not normed on African-American English, which means there might be an over-identification of African-American children who are labeled as having a language disorder. Since we know the high breakdown of children in poverty who are also children of color, often due to generational poverty and systemic racism, there is something that SLPs should be aware of when testing children. A standardized language test that accounts for African-American English is the Diagnostic Evaluation of Language Variation, the DELVE, assessment. Again, it's important to remember that not every African-American child speaks African-American English, nor is every child of color one that comes from poverty.
1: This is all great information, Katie. Like we mentioned earlier, we encourage everyone to get involved in the communities we serve. One of the ways to do this outside of speech-language pathology-specific tasks is to increase the literacy visibility in the community. Someone doing this currently is Addie White, a Masters of Education student at Southern Methodist University.
0: We talked to Addie about something she calls Project Book Nook, planting libraries and local laundromats to serve low-income communities around her hometown. <laughs> Addie, tell us a little bit about why you chose to implement Project Book Nook. What drew you to a low-income area specifically?
2: Last summer, my family's washing machine broke, so we began cleaning our clothes at a nearby laundromat located in the middle of a bilingual neighborhood surrounded by Title I schools. Funny enough, I actually ended up student teaching in the area later that fall at RISD Academy, which is just a few blocks away from the laundromat. Anyways, after just a few visits to the laundromat, I noticed something. There were always children there. Whether I visited midweek or late at night, um, I saw children accompanying their parents on laundry visits. Siblings played chase, young ones brought their favorite toys to carry around, and others pretended to play on arcade games they didn't actually bring quarters for. Um, That's when the idea hit me. If these kids really need something to do, it'd be great if books were made available to them. And while I could say I knew the educational level of these children, I And while I couldn't say I knew the educational level of these children, I could guess that a number of them came from homes where parents work more than one job and don't have the time um, to read their children every night. So, to answer your question, what drew me to a low-income area specifically was the fact that my washing machine broke. However, what kept me coming back were the kids.
1: Wow, I'm very inspired by your story. So, what is the importance of speech- language, literacy for kids in poverty or in low-income areas, and what resources led you to understanding the gap between socioeconomic status and literacy and language.
2: At the time of Project Book Next founding, I had just recently received my BS in Educational Studies at SMU, where I had taken a number of education courses centered around topics such as English learners, cultural competency, social-emotional learning, and the unique needs of students in low-income areas. For example, I had learned that higher income parents spend nearly a half hour more per day engaged in direct face-to-face. Goodnight moon time with their children than low-income parents do. And by the time these children are five years old, the poor ones will have heard 30 million fewer words than their wealthy peers. This is what we refer to as the word gap between low-income and higher income students. I want to be clear, my point is not to shame low-income parents. If anything, these families bring more compassion and grit to the table than most. The majority of them would walk to the ends of earth for their children, but also means they may be working multiple jobs and don't have time to reach their kids. Additionally, many of these parents simply aren't well informed about the benefits of reading their children on a consistent basis. But beyond this family aspect, there's another piece of research that found there is nearly a 90% probability that a child will remain a poor reader at the end of the fourth grade if the child is poor reader at the end of first grade. Um, however, we also know that ninety-two. percent of poor readers can reach average reading skills with early intervention. The implication here is that we have to catch kids early. We need to use data-driven instructions to meet their needs in the classroom. We have to expose them to reading as many places as possible. And we must build partnerships with parents and guardians in order to accomplish these goals.
0: I totally agree. What outcomes have you personally seen on the community or kids that have been served by your book nook?
2: favorite thing to have seen while we built the book nook and even days when I came back to check on where the kids who were genuinely excited to hold books in their hands to be honest I was rarely that excited about books as a kid myself but um I think the difference between my younger self and these kids speaks volumes about what they lack elsewhere and what they're eager to do which is read additionally just days after book nook's construction I received this very encouraging email from Hong Vo the manager of Lone Star Laundry Um, It it said, like, from the bottom of our hearts, thank you for the wonderful books and gifts for our laundromat. Just tonight, one child asked us if he could buy a Spanish book to take home with him. Already, your gifts have shown a positive impact to the children's lives here and to the community around us.
1: I love that. So how did you gain community support and funding? And how did you explain to the public how important literacy is for the children in low-income areas?
2: things i did was create a few infographics about the literacy statistics mentioned above then i used those as part of my social media campaign i essentially bombarded my facebook friends and instagram followers with a link to a crowdfunding website it provided fruitful enough to find the project and i was super grateful for that i was able to buy shelving an area rug beanbag chairs storage bins and of course lots of books
0: what do you want others to know about implementing good speech language, and literacy skills for children, specifically those in low-income areas.
2: I think when it comes to our low-income students, we as educators and community members must work to maintain an asset-based perspective. In other words, rather than looking at our students for what they lack, we view them for what they're bringing to the table. For example, bilingualism is an incredibly valuable skill that I think many students are steadily taught to suppress. I want my own students to realize how incredible they are, and while I do want to push them to read, write, listen, and speak in the so-called language of power, um, connecting all that they learn to their own language and our experiences and passions will be just as important.
1: So, Addie, what do you hope to come from Project Book Nook? And what are your future plans?
2: My plan is to utilize the summer to visit potential new sites for Book Nooks in the greater Dallas area and to speak to owners about implementing the project at their respective laundromat I'm glad I had time to really invest in my first project um, because I was able to follow up with the owner a number of times and identify potential areas of growth. For example, I discovered there can be such a thing as too many books in one place, especially when the owners of the laundromat are left to help maintain the area and keep the books organized. So in order to establish a greater number of locations, I realized the nooks will have to be scaled down versions of my first project. Um, Nonetheless, I think they will still reap the same benefits.
0: Thank you so much for answering all our questions, Addy. How can people help? After I visit the sites this summer and gotten approval from laundromat owners, I'll be updating our website
2: with fundraising links and ways to donate used books. Um, so check it out. It's a, um, Thank you for talking to me today. It's been incredible. Um, I'll provide you with my website link. And thank you.
1: No, thank you, Addy, for taking the time to come and answer our questions we'll be sure to share the link that Addie has sent us at the end of this podcast.
0: I love the fact that Addie addresses some really unique ways to incorporate literacy in these kids' lives. She really took into consideration some of the things we discussed earlier, such as bringing the books to the families and meeting them where they are. In this case, the books are in a place where the family is already frequent, meaning it takes less effort on the parents' part. I think any way we can provide support while requiring minimal outside work will be beneficial to all types of busy families. So what do we need to know when working with this population? So overall, we know socioeconomic status affects a wide variety of things, not just speech or language. SLPs need to know that behavior issues may arise through no fault of the child. Camille, I heard you have some strategies to share about working with this population.
1: Yes, I do. So according to the ASHA leader, There are a number of practical strategies that SLPs can implement to assist families of low socioeconomic status to help their children succeed. Number one, collaborate with other healthcare professionals to help women become educated about the importance of proper nutrition and healthcare. SLPs can also help to make sure that women of low socioeconomic status have access to these essentials. Number two, help families of low socioeconomic status by providing information about free local medical and dental services, as well as information about nearby locations where food and shelter are available at minimal to no cost. Number three, provide additional language stimulation activities for children from low income backgrounds. For families where the caregivers are non-literate, wordless books can be sent home so that adults and children may discuss the books together. Encourage caregivers to have children participate in book reading routines. Number four, implement early literacy screening measures in early childhood centers, such as a place like Head Start, to identify children of low socioeconomic status who need intervention in early literacy skills.
0: Wow, these are all really helpful, Camille. What else do you have for us?
1: Well, I have a few more. So number five, encourage caregivers to observe in the classroom and in treatment sessions, and encourage their participation. This will help caregivers acquire ideas about how to work effectively with children at home to promote learning. One article suggests taking videos and sending them to the parents if they are unable to attend classroom activities so the parents have good examples. Number six, encourage caregivers to use local public libraries and be aware of their hours of operation. Remind caregivers that many public libraries offer free services. Number seven, make sure that during the week, children are encouraged to use the school library as often as possible. Number eight, because many parents work outside the home and have little time to spend with their children, children can be assigned peer tutors in the school. These peer tutors can assist with homework, read to the children, and carry out other activities with them. Number nine, provide caregivers with information about the necessity of language stimulation beginning in infancy so they can begin appropriate stimulation right away. Number 10. Remember that children from low-income homes might not have as much exposure to technology as children from higher-income homes. Ensure that these children from low-income households are not at a disadvantage in situations where technology is used in the school. Help them to take advantage of the many opportunities that technology opens during the learning process. Number 11. If children are from culturally and linguistically diverse backgrounds, never tell the parents to speak only English at home if their primary language is much stronger than their English is. Speech-language pathologists should tell parents to speak to their children in the language in which they are most comfortable. Number 12, when assessing children of low socioeconomic status with standardized tests, remember that these tests may contain inherent bias because the children have not had these life experiences and exposures to concepts assumed by the test. Be flexible in utilizing dynamic assessment and informal, non-standardized measures.
0: So what I'm hearing is that focusing on ethnic background and languages spoken in children's homes is not enough. Although these variables are important, it is clear that socioeconomic status and caregivers' educational levels have a great impact on the children's cognitive linguistic growth and academic success. There are many strategies that SLPs can use to help children from backgrounds of poverty to succeed in school. By using these strategies that you talked about, SLPs can help these children to be given opportunities to fill their academic and ultimately life potential to the fullest. We reached the end of our time together, but you can donate now to Addie's fundraiser for future Book Nooks at www.projectbooknook.org/slash/how to help. Or implement your own community-directed initiative as well as think about these issues as we face working with children in public schools. Parent-directed language intervention is shown to be effective, so we need to work to meet families in the middle in order to best provide that parent-directed treatment. They know their children best and the home environment is essential.
1: We look forward to seeing and hearing about more SLPs tackling this issue. Let us know what you're doing to support the low SES kids in your community. Poverty is a big issue, but the little things we do as therapists to address these needs will go a long way.